All right, so we're continuing our series in the Westminster Larger Catechism. We're going to be looking at questions six and seven today. We'll get partly through seven, definitely not all the way. But to finish a whole question, number six, and get through another, I think is uh, better than we've been doing so far speed-wise. Um, the booklets I've been wanting to buy for y'all to be able to follow along easily are still sold out, but on any app store, whether you have an iPhone or Android, if you just search in the store something like Reformed Creeds and Confessions, uh, most of the first apps that'll pop up have a good listing of all the creeds, and usually you'll have the larger catechism in there if you want to follow along a bit more e easily. Uh, Westminster Seminary makes a good app. that It's only for iPhone, though. But if you just search Reformed Creeds and Confessions, something should uh, pop up. And if you want to spend the next five minutes doing that and ignoring me, that's fine. Go ahead. Um, alrighty, so question six says this. What do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. So we're not going to spend much time on this because this kind of covers what we looked at last week. This is just giving us an overview of how the catechism is going to break down um, what we learn about God in theology. So what God is, that is, question seven is going to go over his attributes, then the persons of the Godhead, which is the triunity of God. Then God's decrees and the execution of his decrees. And what basically they're talking about there is that God determined, he decreed to create the world and then to providentially guide the world throughout human history. So God's decrees, it says, we'll see in later sessions, are creation and providence, which includes that redemption, the restoration, the whole plan of God. All right, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Question seven asks a significant question. What is God? And the answer we're given is that God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. What an amazing thing it is to contemplate God. And uh, we're going to get probably only to the first few of these this week. But let's ask God's help as we consider him. Heavenly Father, we do recognize that it will be our eternal blessedness to behold the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us such that we can behold you now. We behold you in your works in this world. We behold you in your image in each other. But especially, Lord, we learn of you in Christ and through your word, your nature and character, your goodness and kindness, Lord. So open our hearts and minds, even now by your spirit, to catch even just a slightly greater glimpse of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so just and let's introduce this question here. This question asks, what is God? And I don't know if it's ever struck you as odd, but it always struck me as odd that it asks, what is God? That sounds so cold and distant. Um, I'm like, God's personal, right? Shouldn't we be asking who is God and not what is God? Is, like, is that just like an old antiquated way of speaking? Well, it's not. If you think about it, I could ask you both what are you as well as who are you, right? So if I'm thinking, what am I? 
That's a question of what kind of thing am I? I am a human. And then you could ask, what is a human? And that's going to lead you to the properties of being human, your reasoning, the types of bodies humans have. We're talking about characteristics. Whereas then if you ask me, who are you? That's not a question of what type of thing am I, but a particular identity. And that goes particularly with my name. I am JC Davison. That's who I am, my personal identity. But what is a question of attributes? So when we're asking what is God, we're asking what are the qualities that make God God? What is Godness? Or what are those qualities of divinity by which we can discern God as God? What is God like? And even though we know that God is so different from us that he can't ever be fully known or fully grasped by our small minds, but because God has revealed himself, he can be truly known. Okay, our knowledge about God, even though it's incomplete, is true knowledge because God has revealed it to us. And so as we're asking, what is God? This question and answer gives us actually a 20-part definition, uh, 20 attributes, depending how you count it, about what God is like. So we're going to, and this is the only question that deals with this. And this is like, this is hundreds of pages of systematic theology have dealt with God's attributes. So this is going to be a flyby, even though I hope, I think some of this is going to be a bit deeper for us as well. So this question of God's attributes when we're talking about God's attributes, we're talking about the qualities that relate to God's being, or you could say God's existence, or God's nature, or his essence. This is what we're talking about, things that, are, uh, that um, correspond to God's nature itself. And because this is true of God's nature, God only has one essence, one nature. Therefore, every one of these categories, every one of these properties applies to each of the three persons of the Godhead. So all of these are true of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit because they are true of God's nature. And God only has one nature. Uh, Francis Turretin describes God's attributes as the, um, that they indicate perfections that are essential to the divine nature conceived by us as properties. And this is an important point that we're not going to flesh out fully, but God, um, be, there's, a, there's a doctrine in Reformed theology called divine simplicity, which says that God is one substance. That is, God doesn't have any parts. God's attributes are not distinct and separate categories that all combine to form God. Because God is infinite, all that is in God, we say in Reformed theology, is God. So when Jesus says that, or Paul says that God is love, that's not just that God has love or God expresses love. Love as an attribute can actually be seen as defining the whole of God. God is love. So even though we think about God's attributes in terms of attribution and property, these are actually descriptions of God himself. And even though it's a bit mind-boggling to think of how God is this simple substance without parts, we, we have to recognize that um, God actually is his attributes. They're not just things that he has. Um, if you want to look more to that, I can give you some resources to read. It's a little philosophical and mind-bendy, and we won't spend too much time on it. But just to, important to recognize that the way we're talking about God is not quite the same way that we talk about other things and the properties of humans. There is a qualitative difference in God. Now, if we were to 
distinguish between all these different attributes. Uh, there's been debate, different traditions in the church. They categorize, say, these 20 different things into usually two different lumps. They go sometimes by different names, positive and negative attributes. In the Reformed tradition, they generally get called incommunicable and communicable attributes. And that's just saying there are some things about God that we just can't really communicate. They, they're, they're not like us in any way. God has some qualities that are so different from our experience that we can't fully comprehend them. So there's this whole batch here, this basket of things that we can't really understand that are um, particular to God. But then there's a whole nother batch that are called communicable attributes, which are things in God that we can somewhat share in, somewhat understand and somewhat experience. These are his qualities more like his grace, his love, his mercy. Whereas the ones we can't really understand are those ones like his infinity, his eternity, such like that. And though this language is helpful, um, Herman Bovink suggests that what all these things are getting at is Two is, is a balance between two aspects of God. And this is really important. Throughout church history, there's been a struggle to balance two, two ways of thinking about God. The first is the idea of transcendence, that God is above and beyond and so holy and so distinct from us that we can not truly comprehend him, transcendence. But then the other side is that of imminence, that even though God is great and high and holy, yet he draws near to humanity. He shows mercy and love in intimate personal relationships with each one of us. And to get God rightly is to get the balance between God's transcendence and imminence right. And this has been getting shooken up for the last couple hundred years in church history, trying to navigate this balance. And theologians keep introducing new ideas that tip the scales one way or the other. And um, here, here's the significance of this. If you err on the side of transcendence, what happens is that God moves so far away from you that you can no longer see him. And so when you lose imminence, all you end up with is human reason, our reasoning and experience of God. And if you lose imminence, what you end up with is first deism, that God exists, but he's not involved in our lives, and eventually atheism. Okay, this was where the scale was pressed in the founding of this country in the 1700s in general, was that human reason was eminent. God existed, but he wasn't a part of life. They lost imminence. But then in the 1800s, in a, re in a rebellion against the Enlightenment, particularly with the first father of liberal theology, Frederick Schleiermacher, tilted the scales hugely in favor of eminence or imminence, that God is close and personal. And it's not reason, but it's human experience that comes to the fore. But you end up with the same problem. When God comes so close so close, you can no longer distinguish him. Like if your face is right pressed up against something, you can't really see it clearly anymore as well. So if you push God so far away, you can't see him. But if you bring him so close, you can't see him either. And all, you're, all you end up with is the human experience. And so theologies that emphasize God's imminence, they end up first going towards pluralism. Be, be, because... God becomes no different than the human experience of God. So you'd say God is found in all religions. 
And eventually you end up with also pantheism, that everything is God. If God is so close to me, God eventually becomes me. God becomes you. God becomes this world. And so when the scales tip that way, you basically come full circle. You lose the God of Scripture when you push him too far away or bring him too close. And that's why it's important for us to acknowledge these two groupings of attributes, that many of God's attributes speak to us of his transcendence, his otherness than us. But there's another whole group that speak of God's closeness and relevance to us. And we have to firmly hold on to both, even though there seems to be a tension between them. And people have wrestled with this. And um, so in general, the error of the liberal church is to lose transcendence. And the error of the conservative church is usually to lose imminence. And I just want to speak about this for a minute because we are in a conservative church. So this is our proneness. And just here's the danger in our mind when we lose God's imminence. We lose those relational aspects of God. Some things that happen are you can be tempted towards a this-worldly focus. You lose that focus of the kingdom here and now growing, and you end up just focusing on yourself, your work, your family, no real divine calling in your vocation, just a comfortable life. Another thing that can happen when you lose imminence is legalism because you lose the heart of religion and it just becomes those external rules. You can also fall into dead orthodoxy. That is, you've lost the imminence of the spirit of God enlivening everything we do in our religion. Another common characteristic of this lack of imminence, loss of imminence, is a lack of assurance and fearfulness because there's a lack of understanding of God's love. God's personal love for his children. And when you lose that relational, intimate quality, you end up with a God who's far away and you can only fear for your salvation because you don't actually know God personally. And another thing that can happen is judgmentalism because God's grace is not emphasized. And so what's left without grace is just judgment. Okay, so these are things we need to watch out for that we keep those balance, uh, those scales tipped. Maybe there's someone here who's, who errs the other side, but I think in general, our circles, we, we err on the transcendent side because we love those truths that God is to a holy God, to be worshipped in reverence and awe, which is wonderful, but it's all about balance. So I hope we all keep this in mind as we start to look through these different things. Um, one last thing by way of introduction before we start looking at these attributes It's just a question of how do we speak about God? How can we, in our finite human language, even say things that are true about God? And this has also been something that's been debated in church history. And just to qualify in our minds, these are the three categories we think of. Is that we want to distinguish that when we speak of God, our speech is not univocal. That is, when we say love, God isn't exactly fitting what we mean when we say love. It's something like it, but it's going to be so other than what we truly understand. Our speech does not perfectly correspond to what God is. When we say God is infinite, our understanding of that does not capture what God's infinity actually is. There's not a perfect one-to-one correlation between our speech and God's nature. But secondly, Our speech is also not equivocal. So it's not to say that when we say God is love, we can't actually know anything about love, and therefore we're not saying anything true about God. 
uh, some theologians have gone this way to say that we can't really say anything true about God because he's so transcendent. We can only say things like God is not hate or God is not wicked. That's also wrong. The right way to think about it is that all our speech of God is analogical. That is, it is by way of analogy, right? So if you think of what an analogy is, it's taking something here and something here that you want to understand and using a point of commonality in the middle to reference them both, right? It's, it, it's an analogy. You have this thing and this thing that are different, and the way to understand them is by understanding what they have in common. So our speech about God is analogical, largely in that the point of reference is ourselves and human nature. So we have these qualities that we experience, these categories. We have God himself, but often the point of commonality is us, our nature, because we are made in the image of God. We are made in God's likeness. And so there's a sense in which you could say all language about God in the Bible is what we call anthropomorphic language. That is, anthropology, the study of humanity. Anthropomorphism refers to talking about God in human categories. This happens most obviously when we speak of God's arm or his eye. God doesn't have these body parts, but we're using human language. We can follow that further when we speak of God's love or his hate, um, his regret, his grief. Those are ascribing human emotions to God. But also when we think of these things like space, um, mercy, judgment, patience, we, we can't think other than in human categories. But we have to see that these are all a point of analogy between our experience. We have to understand that God is different, but there's a likeness, an imaging. Okay, any, any comments or questions before we start to look at God's spirituality? Okay, so this is attribute one. It says simply, God is a spirit. This is how the answer begins. God is a spirit. John 4.24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is a base, fundamental description of what God is like. God is a spirit. Now, what does this mean when we're talking about God's spirituality, the fact that God is a spirit? Well, on the negative side, it means that God is incorporeal. God is non-physical. God is invisible. God is immaterial. Notice, those are all negations of our material reality. God is none of those things. That is, the realm of God's existence is fundamentally different than the realm of our existence. God exists in a non-material realm because he's a non-material person. We can't even understand that fully because our whole existence is wrapped in a material realm. So there's a fundamental unlikeness to us in the fact that God is spirit. But here's where that analogical or anthropomorphic thinking helps us here. Our point of contact with God's spirituality is the fact that we've been given a spirit. And spirit and soul are describing the same fundamental reality about humans in scripture. The soul or the spirit is that invisible, immaterial part of ourselves. One, one way I've, I've heard recently that I liked the description of the soul from Herman Bovink was talking about that your soul is really found in your ability to say, I, I do this. 
I did that. When you consider even yourself as a five-year-old or yourself as a 50-year-old, those two beings are so physically unlike, yet consistent, perfectly consistent in your whole life is this ability that was me, this is me, that will be me. There's a point of personal identity that we find that is talking about something that is um, not a part of our physical reality. It's an immaterial substance. And this I, the I is what thinks and wants and love. I want that. I, I like this. I dislike this. This self-consciousness is a significant part of our soul. Um, animals don't think self-consciously. They think um, instinctively. And so what our self-consciousness implies, our soul implies that we have a mind, we have a will, and we have affections. That is, we think, we feel, and we will. We desire things. And this is our spirituality. And it's actually this spirit, this immaterial spiritual part of ourselves that enables us to know God. God formed man from the dust of the earth. And it says in Genesis that he breathed the breath of life into him. Our spirit is that animating life force in us. Animals can't know God because they don't have a portion of God's spirit within them. We've been given an imaging, a likeness of God. And that is the reason we can actually know God because we have, in a sense, a part of him within ourselves. I I liked this quote from A.A. Hodge. He said, the fundamental fact upon which all science, all theology, and all religion rests is the fact that God made man a living soul in his own image. Otherwise, man could have no understanding of God's works any more than his nature, and all relations of thought or feeling between them would be impossible. He's saying the reason we can know God, even though God's an immaterial spirit, is that we also have an immaterial spirit. And so on the positive side, if negatively this means God doesn't have um, a body, he's invisible. Positively, the fact that God is a spirit means that God is personal. Um, Spirits are not just diffuse substances. Spirits are personal beings. So God is not just a mindless force in the universe. He's not the force. Um, God is a spirit, which means God also has a self-consciousness. God has a self-awareness. God has, and we're partly using human language here, but God has a mind that thinks. He has a will that desires, and he has a heart that feels. Now, again, we are using human language here. There is a difference. But all these properties of our spirit are properties of God's spirit. He's a personal being. And God's personality is essential to who he is. That's something that separates our religion from all others, is that our spiritual being is a personal spirit. How do you distinguish that then between uh, Old and New Testament, where Christ goes to heaven and he gives us his You're saying the difference between our spirit naturally and then when we receive the Holy Spirit, like in conversion? Right. So when we're talking about us receiving the Holy Spirit, that's not like a metaphysical act that God's spirit like comes into our bodies or anything. Usually when... Um, 
the regenerating work of the Spirit is talked about, it's a renewing of our three parts of our soul, our mind, our will, and emotions, which as the image of God have been corrupted through sin. And so when the Spirit makes us new and gives us of His Spirit, what that does is it illuminates our minds to have faith in God, it renews our hearts to actually love God, and it renews our wills to actually desire to obey God. So the Spirit's work in us is like a cleansing of our own spirits to give us new capabilities with the parts of the Spirit we already have. So the um, the properties of our spirit and an unbeliever's spirit are the same. We each have mind, will, and emotions. But for the believer indwelt by the Spirit of God, there's been a fundamental reordering and renewing of our mind, will, and emotions. Does that make sense? Um, and uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit is an, also an empowering being that we can call upon to help us. So he's, he's our helper as well, who comes alongside and enables us to live out with this new faith, this new love, and this new desire. So yeah, that, that's how I'd answer that. Um, and if we, if we, we do know, we think, okay, God became Christ, right? So does that mean God becomes not a spirit in Jesus because Jesus was physical, right? Well, the, way, the proper way to think about that is that Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And so God, Jesus' divine nature cannot be truly seen. His divine nature remains invisible and spiritual, but his human nature has with it a true body, a human body. And so he remains both spirit, something we've never seen, even while he takes on a human form that we can see. And those sort of questions will come up more in Christology. Now, for each of these... We don't want to just think about God's attributes as like a math puzzle that we're trying to understand the depths of God. These things all have relevance for our lives. So I want to try to bring some application for each one of them. Uh, so firstly, let's consider what, what does God's spirituality mean for us? How does this affect our lives? Well, Jesus gave an application after that statement with the woman at the well in John 4:24. He said, God is a spirit. And here's his implication. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the first thing we learn from God's spirituality is that he is to be worshipped spiritually. So this means, on the one hand, that our worship of God must include the participation of our spirits in worship. That is, our mind needs to be set on his truth. Our heart needs to be stirred up with loving affection for him. And our will, will needs to be compelled to desire and endeavor to live for God. And that's why God rejects all external worship that does not involve the human spirit in it. Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, that these people, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were only worshiping in body, not in spirit. The heart has to be involved. He says again and again, I don't want sacrifice, but thanksgiving is the sacrifice that I desire. Obedience is what I desire. So we have to engage our whole selves in God's worship spiritually, or else it will be of no honor to him. But a second implication there is how God commanded that he not be worshipped with images. This is a fundamental application of God's spirituality. God is a non-physical being and therefore is not to be represented with physical images because any physical image of a spiritual being is ultimately a lie about that being. 
because the physical image cannot show an invisible spiritual being, which is why the Christian religion is not fundamentally a visible religion with idol-making and worshiping at, at elaborate shrines and ornate temples, because God, our religion is a communicative religion. God has given us to speak of him in these ways, not to image him. And this is the arguing that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when the people are commanded to not worship God via images. They're, they're inappropriate for his nature. That is, any image made for use in worshiping God is something of a disgrace to who he actually is. So th- 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 these are some implications for worship. But secondly, the fact that God is a spirit and really the source of all spirituality, it means for us that God is the only truly fit resting place for the human spirit. As Augustine said, our spirits, our soul is restless until they rest in God, the true spirit. And when our hearts attach themselves, our spirits go after any physical finite thing in this world, whether money or sex or power or food, it's always going to be dissatisfying because the spiritual part of ourselves isn't sustained by those things. Our, our body can be contented with food, but our spirit will not be contented even with the finest, most delicious food. It is meant to rest in God, the spirit. And so our happiness then in our life will come from spiritual renewal and spiritual growth as God renews our spirit to be more like him and he um, trains us in Christ likeness that likeness to God that spiritual growth is an actual um, it's our spirit coming just an inch closer to who God is in himself and then the more we become like God the more we share in his divine blessedness and happiness And so we find our joy in resting in God and reflecting God. And because that's where our spirit is most connected to him. Okay, that's God's spirituality. Any comments or questions before we look at God's infinity? Do the different parts of the spirit, like the mind, the heart, and the will, correlate with like the Trinity at all? Like the different persons of God? Um, In a sense, yes. Um, yeah, because God is one and three, but if we were to um, order them that way, we could probably think of the Father as the mind, the source of creation. Um, yeah, the Son or the Spirit, I'm not sure where they would map on. Um, the Spirit works on our will preeminently. Christ is the source of our love. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, a, it's interesting to think about those things kind of and try to, because you can see images of Trinitarian thought all in every sort of aspect of life, but often it's more like um, an intriguing thing than some truth. Does that make sense? So I think, I think we see shadows of Trinitarianness in our soul, but um, I wouldn't like to hold that this is the way it actually is. Does that make sense? Okay, secondly, God's infinity. The, the, the next phrase of this is that God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfections. God's infinity. What we're talking about when we're talking about God's infinity is his limitlessness or his boundlessness. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable, can't be searched out. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. 
Okay, so this concept of infinity, it's something our minds can never truly grasp because our minds are finite. And this concept of infinity, of boundlessness, is applied to God's being, his glory, his blessedness, and his perfections. Really, every attribute of God is infinite, not just these four, because infinity is a category of the divine being itself. So first it says he is infinite in being. That's, again, that word being, we could think of it as he's infinite in his existence, infinite in his nature, infinite in his essence. And this is a very fundamental aspect of God, is that his being is infinite. And so if we were to compare God's infinite being with our finite being, okay, what's the difference here? What are we noticing about God that's unlike ourselves? Well, our finite nature is bounded. We have significant constraints to our existence. What's the fundamental constraint of our existence? It's the fact that we had to be born. We actually didn't exist, and then were brought and birthed into existence. Further, our existence is very constrained by external factors. We need food, we need light, we need everything that nourishes us and sustains us. We are bounded by the things we need both for life and sustenance. Uh, whereas God, on the other hand, is unconstrained and unbounded in any of the, these ways. That is, God had no source of his existence like we did. God did not come into being. God also has no constraints needed to sustain him. God is not, um, not sustained in his life by anything outside of himself. God is the source of his own existence, and God is the sustenance of his own existence. And so the philosophers have then said what a term they used to describe God in this way is that God is a necessary being. And what they mean is that God is not contingent, right? To be contingent means there's something beyond you that feeds into you as a contingency. Uh, there, something was necessary in order to make the contingent thing happen, right? Like the, uh, the electrons have to combine in the sky as a necessity in order to make lightning. Lightning is contingent on the meeting of those electrons. God is not contingent on anything. He's the necessary being. And everything else in existence is contingent upon God. Everything else has God as its source and God as its sustenance. As Acts 17 says, in him, all creatures live and move and have their being. So God is life itself, we could say. God is perfect, infinite life. Um, and he derives it from no other source, and it'll never run out. So we, we, we think of the sun as this infinite fuel source that will just keep burning and burning. But we even know the sun can't do that infinitely. The sun will eventually use up its resources if the Lord tarries. But God will never lessen in any way from his fullness of life. His life will never decrease because it's an infinite source coming from himself. And it says that he is in and of himself infinite in being, right? God is the source. And the historic doctrinal term used for this is God's aseity, his unchangingness. We might update that and say his self-existence or his independence. And this attribute of self-existence is most clearly seen in the divine name given in Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am that I am. He said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me to you. 
And so this divine name, I am, means I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. That is, God is always the fullness of God, an, an unchanging I am, the source of his own life and existence. God is the grounding of his own existence and the ground of all other existence. And so from God's infinity of being, what we imply from that is he is also infinite in glory, blessedness, and perfection. He's infinite in glory in that God is unfathomably beautiful and praiseworthy. God's infinite in blessedness in that he is incomprehensibly joyful and perfectly peaceful. And God's infinite in perfection in that it is utterly unimaginable to conceive that God could be improved in any way. That it's, it's, in, it's inconceivable that God could have even the slightest of defects because God is infinite in perfection. And so God's infinity, how, how does this reach us? What's the application to our own lives from this truth? Well, I think the fundamental one is humility when we consider our finitude in light of God's infinity. Job 11, 7 to 9 says this, Can you by searching find out God? Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? It's as high as heaven. What can you do? Deeper than hell. What can you know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That is, God's ways are higher than our ways. His, perfect, his perfections are beyond our grasp. And therefore, we must be utterly careful that we never ascribe to God or imply to God any limit, any error in him, any evil in him, or render any complaint against him. There are many these days, um, even in evangelical churches, who attribute limits to God's power, limits to God's mind, hoping to make him more relational. Um, atheists attribute evil to the God of Scripture. They say this God would be a monster. What a fearful place to stand from our small comprehension to say that the way God has sought to work in this world is evil or that God made a mistake. God is infinite in his perfections. And therefore we must, um, like Ecclesiastes says, let our words be few in the light of God's perfection. And, and the last thing I'd say on this, is then if God is this infinite source of life itself, how desirable is it to imitate God? Like we saw before, as we grow spiritually, we're growing in conformity to God. But to be striving to grow in perfection, Matthew 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We have a calling to try to come closer and closer to the perfections of God. And as we're striving after this God-likeness, what we're going after is actually a greater fullness of life itself. God is life. And the more we walk in God, the more we walk in life. In scripture, life and death is not primarily an on-off switch. Life is a conformity to God, whereas death is a deformity from God. It's walking contrary to God's ways. Whereas the more we are walking with God, the more we are becoming like God, the more we are sharing in that blessedness and joy of God's life himself. So let's let God's infinity um, and his life-givingness just call us forward to try to participate in that life ourselves. Um, time for maybe one, one question before we pray. Alrighty, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ by your Spirit, and we thank you that you are not just some force, but that you are personal, and that you have revealed who you are to us, and you have revealed what you are to us. And we thank you that you are so unlike us, that you have um, no errors like we have, no limitations like we do. And so we ask that we would more fully trust you, that we would more fully hope in you, that we would work to become like you to trust your loving heart, to look to your perfections, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And Lord, we ask for help, especially in our worship service, that we will worship you with our spirits, that we will give you all our minds' attention, all our hearts' affection, and that our wills would be re-energized to walk in the things of God. We ask for your help, for Jesus' sake. Amen.